We are looking this morning at Mark chapter 10. We're reading verses 35 to 45. If you have a copy of scripture, I would invite you to turn there. I know that you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy open and be reading along with me. Mark 10, 35 to 45. Um, my apologies to my elders who have heard this message in a number of forms over the last year and a half, the Lord has really weighed um, these things on my heart, and I hope that they'll be a blessing to you this morning. Mark 10, 35 to 45. Now Mark records these words, and James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Wow. That's pretty intense. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. Wow. <laughs> and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Another wow. And Jesus called them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, you have no doubt heard about Robert Murray McShane. And if you know anything about McShane, you know that he had an incredible ministry in the short life that he lived. Many of us, most of us, are older than McShane was when he died. McShane had several very close friends in ministry that maybe you have or have not heard of. Andrew and Horatius Bonar were two of his best friends. We sing a lot of Horatius Bonar's hymns. Uh, Andrew Bonar we know less about, but he also had a very uh, prolific writing ministry and a very blessed preaching ministry. The Bonars would often go with McShane on missionary journeys to Israel and would engage in other labors in seeing the gospel planted throughout Scotland in their day. They were all mentored, at least in part, by Thomas Chalmers. But as McShane's ministry burgeoned, as he became more and more popular, as more and more people were flocking to hear McShane preach, Andrew Bonar started to harbor uh, envy in his heart. We know that because he wrestled with the envy that was going on inside over the success of his very close friend's ministry because he wrote about it in his diary. Bernard came to a point, a breaking point, where he finally realized something had to happen because the envy was eating him up so much, and he wrote this in his diary. He said, it is amazing that the Lord has spared me and uses me at all. It is amazing that the Lord has spared me and uses me at all. He said, it is amazing. I have no reason to wonder that he has used others far more than he does me. 
yet envy is my hurt. And today I've been seeking grace to rejoice exceedingly over the usefulness of others, even where it casts me into the shade. Lord, take this envy away from me. What, what a remarkable sentiment. It's amazing that the Lord has spared me and uses me at all. It's not shocking that he would use others more than me. And yet, how countercultural. Not just countercultural, how, how contrary even to what's in our own hearts, how contrary even to what was in the hearts of the disciples. You know, one of the marvelous things as you're reading through the gospel records is how many times the Lord Jesus tells the disciples that he came to suffer, that he's going to have to be beaten and mocked, scourged, spit upon, nailed to the tree, then he's going to rise. And right after he does that, you know what they do? They argue about who's the greatest. Recurrently. Here in Mark 10, they do it right after the institution of the Lord's Supper. And, and if we ever think that's not in our hearts, we need one quick little glance at the disciples. And we see that envy was their hurt as well. Now, this passage, which you all probably know very well, is such a remarkable passage um, because it really gives us an insight into what is in the human heart. Here are James and John, two of the first disciples that Jesus chose. They are part of that inner band. They have special privileges that the other disciples don't have, and yet it's not enough for them. They need more. They want more. They want greatness. They want position. They want status. They want power. They want influence. Um, I was thinking this week how readily I can acknowledge idols of pleasure and possession, but how sophisticated idols of power are. How, how, how often, and I, I've never heard someone say, you know, I really struggle with grasping for power. Never heard a Christian say that. And yet it happens all the time. Here James and John are grasping for power. They go to Jesus they may put their mother up to it. She may put them up to it. We have different accounts. It's a family enterprise for greatness and power. And they say, Lord, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Imagine that. There's only two times, by the way, that anybody stands over Jesus, who's a believer in the Gospels, this account and the account of Martha, when she says, Lord, do you not care? Do you not care? Here they say, even worse than that, we want you to give us what we want. Um, now, I want us to consider this morning as we look at this passage three things. I want us to consider the nature of the kingdom. I want us to consider the cost of the kingdom, and then I want us to consider the king of the kingdom, the nature of the kingdom, the cost of the kingdom, and the king of the kingdom. Now, uh, this is a bit out of character for James and John. This is not your typical request from them or interaction with the Savior, and it is likely that their mother put them up to it. It's amazing what an influence parents can have, and, and, and she wants them to have success, and they want success, and they've given up everything. They've given up a lucrative fishing business. Their father owned boats, we're told. They gave it all up. They left everything. They followed Christ, but they wanted something that he had not promised them, and selfish ambition had crept into their hearts, and they had misunderstood the nature of the kingdom. They, they were thinking at this time, we followed this one who is the Messiah. He's going to establish an earthly kingdom, and, and when he does, we, we don't need to be number one. Now listen carefully. They're okay being number two, but they're not okay being number three. That's really important. They don't need to be number one, but they want to sit on his right hand and left. Forget about these schmoes, the other disciples. Who cares about them? We want to be great. 
By the way, Peter does the same thing, uh, misunderstanding the nature of the kingdom on the Mount of Transfiguration when he and James and John are there, and he's like, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let's just make three tents and stay here forever. Forget about the mission. Forget about the other disciples. It's about us, this privilege. We're here. We're great. James and John want greatness. Um, you know, it is altogether possible for us to use Jesus for worldly ends. It's altogether possible. I know that in my own heart. It's altogether possible to use Christ to make you great. That's what James and John are doing. They're using the Lord Jesus to make themselves great. And, you know, I love, I love the way Jesus engages them. The Savior is so gentle. We just sang, Jesus strong and kind. You know, if James and John said this, I would want to punk them out. I mean, the other disciples are indignant. Verse 41, they're indignant. They have the same thing going on in their hearts. They're like, wait a minute, you're not going to get ahead of us. They're mad that they would even ask that. But Jesus is so gentle. Notice this. The Savior says, what do you want me to do for you? He knows the request is inappropriate. He knows what's in their hearts. Um, how encouraging that is, that the Lord Jesus sees all of our sin, all of our weakness, all of our failings. And he doesn't, he doesn't just bring a sledgehammer hammer down on us. He deals gently. I love the words of that hymn by presumably John Calvin. Um, I greet thee whom my sure redeemer art. And I love that line, thou hast no harshness and no bitterness. You know, Christ reserved harshness for those that hated him and opposed his kingdom. But he deals gently with his disciples. Um, he entertains them. They tell him what they want. He then deals gently with them and says to them in verse 38, you do not know what you were asking. You know, there's a word there for us. Um, it's good that the Lord doesn't give us what we want so often because we don't know oftentimes what we're asking for. I have a very close friend who whenever a megalomaniac pastor falls, says to me, if you had a million people listening to your sermons every day, you'd be way worse than that guy. Tuck that away, because it's true. We oftentimes don't know what we're asking for. Um, the disciples don't know what they're asking for. You know, they're, they're essentially doing what C.S. Lewis in his uh, graduation speech at King's College in London in 1944 did. It's a little essay now called The Inner Ring. Uh, Lewis talks about how in society there are all these social rings of influence and status, and, and they're not formal. Lewis says they oftentimes go by the name of me and Tom and him. And, and when you're in an inner ring, you don't talk about it, Lewis says, because to talk about it is to explain that it exists, and, and once you get in one, then there's another that you want to get in, and another, and another. And, and Lewis ultimately says, but there's no ultimate inner ring. It's a futile quest because it's just concentric circles of made-up influence. And that, that's what James and John think they're after. They want to be at the top, in the inner circle. And they don't understand that this is not the nature of the kingdom of God. Notice, Jesus really puts his finger on the wound in verse 42, he, he brings all the disciples in. 
And he says to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. If I could say this verse with the most force I could say it this morning, I would. It shall not be so among you. Jesus says, it shall not be so among you. There is no place for us to have an idol of power in the church. There's no place for me to, to, to strive after greatness in some worldly sense because Jesus says the kingdoms of the world, that's how they function. We don't function that way. You know, shame on the PCA if we function that way. Shame on us if we function that way. Shame on me if I function that way. Jesus says the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over people. They exercise authority. They think they're great. It shall not be so among you. You know, I often reflect on a talk that Joe Novenson gave many, many years ago. I think it's called Draped in a Towel. And Joe says, you know, I've, I've been invited to many conferences, but I've never been invited to a conference, nor have I ever attended a conference on servant leadership or servanthood. That's why this is such a vital word for us. Um, we are called to be servants in the kingdom. That's all we are. That's it. We serve and we die. That's it. Think of that quote by Count Zinzendorf. Uh, Preach the gospel, die, be forgotten. John the Baptist got this. He must increase, I must decrease. How often that needs to be pressed into our souls. He must increase, I must decrease. Even he didn't exalt himself. The only one that could have. Now, Jesus doesn't go there first, though. He does correct their mistaken notions of the kingdom. But notice where he goes. He goes to the cost of the kingdom. He says to them in verse 38, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, Jesus is going to talk about his death under three or four figures in this passage. And the two that he couples here are the cup and the baptism. He's speaking about the same thing. You know this, that the cup is the same cup that the Father puts in front of the Son in the garden. It is um, essentially what happened to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when they were carried up to look into the, the fiery furnace that they were about to be thrown into. The Father is going to put that cup before the Son in the garden. And that cup was meant for us. That's the cup that we were supposed to drink. Isaiah and Jeremiah and the psalmist talk about the cup of the dregs of God's wrath. That, that that's what God says to his people. I'm going to make you drink the very dregs of the cup of my wrath. Like we, we can't even understand the kingdom of God until we understand the cup. And, and Jesus says to them, I came to drink that cup. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? And then, and then he uses the figure of baptism. Now keep in mind, you know this. He's already been baptized. He's not talking about water baptism. He's talking about the fiery baptism of the cross. Um, his own baptism was a, a, a prelude to that. Remember, when Jesus went to John to be baptized, there, there are multitudes that have come to John. And Jesus is the only one who shouldn't be coming to undergo a baptism of repentance. Um, I love this quote. Jeff Thomas, the great Welsh theologian, says this. Here's a great line of repentant sinners 
standing soberly and sorrowing on the bank of the Jordan, waiting to go down to the waters. Thousands have stood there before Jesus, and now there are the last few. He says, survey them with your mind. I want you to imagine that great multitude now coming to the end, coming to John to be baptized, and Jesus is there. Jeff Thomas says, survey them in your mind with me. There's a thief, a drunkard, an adulterer, a liar, a bully, a wife beater, an idol worshiper, a torturer, Jesus, a murderer, a forger, a troublemaker, a braggart, a terrorist, a blasphemer, an abuser of children, a thief. And there's Jesus in that long train of sinners. There's Jesus. And then he steps into the water. And, and Remember, John has been baptizing the people, showing that they were being symbolically cleansed, as if their sins were being washed into the Jordan. And when Jesus steps in, John is pouring, as it were, that polluted water over the head of the Son of God. All, all those sins represented in that water poured over his head, prefiguring what he's going to do on the cross for our sin, being poured on him, imputed to him. And the wrath of God being poured out on the Son till he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the gospel. Listen, let me disabuse you of every other message. That's the gospel for the forgiveness of our sins. He steps in. He's baptized. He's baptized on the cross. He drinks the cup. He says, Are you able to do what I'm about to do? The answer, of course, is no. They would not be able. They don't understand the cost of the kingdom. Jesus didn't come to set up a political kingdom. Jesus is not a business guru who, who manages his church through business practices. He is the suffering savior. That's who we serve. That's, that's who we serve is a suffering savior. And Jesus says to them, look, you are going to drink the cup I drink. You're going to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized, both by our union with him and also by what he's going to call us to endure for him. Um, if I can be totally transparent with you, I, I feel as though I know nothing of this because we have never suffered a day in our life, really, in this country. Um, we have so much affluence, so much. And Jesus says, you're going to have to take up your cross, and you're going to have to follow me. And it's going to be costly. And we've got to arm ourselves with that reality in the midst of all the affluence we have today. Because if it's gone tomorrow, we'll know what this is about. And Jesus says to them, look, you're going to have to. You know, it's very interesting. I can't prove that this is in the text, but I'm going to speculate they asked to be on his right and his left in his glory. And then Jesus says to them, to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. The only other time in the Gospels when right and left are mentioned are at the cross. I actually think Jesus might have that in mind, that he's saying to be on my right hand and my left in my glory is for those for whom it's been prepared. Because they don't understand the glory of Christ is the cross. The glory is the suffering, suffering. The glory is the shame. The glory is the ignominy. When he becomes a curse, that's his glory. That, you know, his face, Jesus' face shone like the sun at the transfiguration, but there is more glory with the crown of thorns pressed on his head on the cross. 
That is his glory. That's where he sets his kingdom up and establishes it. Now, I want us to consider just finally not just the nature or the cost, but the king of the kingdom. Notice, after correcting their misplaced notions of the nature of the kingdom, Jesus says those famous words in verse 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. There's only, I think, two or three times in the gospel records where Jesus explains what's happening on the cross. This is one of them. John 10, when he says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Here, in a more poignant way, Jesus says, I came to serve you by giving my life a ransom for you. Um, Wow. When, when we think about our misplaced ambitions, and then we look at the eternal Son of God who emptied himself of what was his by divine right, we, we can't even understand. And the best the Apostle Paul can do is say, he who was rich became poor so that for your sakes, you, through his poverty, might become rich. We, we can't even get the extent of him leaving eternal glory and power and majesty. He is the infinite God, and he left that to serve everyone he came to die for and to have his soul made a sacrifice for your sinful, filthy soul and my sinful, filthy soul. That's amazing. Um... You know, I've been convicted recently that we can talk about humility. We can talk about the evils of ambition. We can talk about idols of power. We can talk about everything that, that is wrong, everything that we need. But there's only one place where there's a remedy for us. And, and Jesus brings us there. He says, look, even the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve. You know where we see this played out? In the upper room. Think about this. Jesus is hours from the cross. Hours from being cast into the fiery furnace. Hours from drinking the cup. And he's in the upper room with his disciples, including Judas. And sometime during that dinner, he realizes that none of the disciples have done the very basic act of hospitality. He, he looks over, he sees the basin, sees that this is beneath them. They're not going to take the basin up. And so what does Jesus do? He doesn't tell them take the basin up. He goes up, he rises, he gets it, he disrobes, he stoops, he washes their feet, he rises again, and he sits back down. And that's a parable, isn't it, of what he's going to do at the cross. It's a parable. He who was in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God and made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant, coming in the likeness of sinful flesh. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. It's a parable. And then he says to them, if I, your Lord and teacher, have done this, you also ought to do so. Um, I want to encourage you this morning 
that we would ask the Lord to give us that same mind that he had. What, what a difference. You know, every time I go online, people are trashing the church, trashing the church, trashing the church. You know, it's a far more noble task to adopt a servant mindset and say, I am going to serve like the Lord did for the good of others. Uh, there was one man I know who embodied this more than anyone else. His name was John Skilton. You probably have never heard of him. He was the professor of New Testament and Greek at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia for 43 years. John was single. He died at 95. Um, John was such a scholar that there are there are um, stories that he and John Murray, who you've maybe heard of, had a, a contest to see who could memorize the Greek New Testament first, and then all the variants. And John Skilton beat out John Murray. He was so bright that he would take the bus to Westminster Seminary, and he had written his doctoral dissertation on English translations of the Bible from 1880 to 1905, and and. Uh, he was doing it at uh, University, University of Pennsylvania. He left it on the bus and couldn't get a copy of it again, and he reconstructed it from memory. Now, that's not what made John great. What made John great, because I was a very little boy growing up in what was called the Skilton House in the Vietnamese section of Philadelphia. John, at 80 years old, I'll never forget this, would sleep on the floor and would give missionaries and homeless people his bed. I mean, remarkable. I remember we were a somewhat affluent family growing up in the main line of Philadelphia, and we would go to the Skilton house, and John would say to my parents, let me make you some food, and my mom would be like, John, we should be making you food. He had that servant mentality. I own one book out of John Skilton's library, and it's called The Mind of Christ. And it is, to me, sort of a, a sweet keepsake because that's what Jesus wants from us. He wants us to adopt the mind of Christ. Philippians 2, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Prefer others above yourself. Look, this is not a political speech to prime us for whatever we're going to do today. This is something that the Lord wants us to adopt every day in our ministries. And if we do that, think of the change. Think of the advance of the kingdom. Think of the lives impacted by that. I want that in my life. I hope that you want it in yours. And the Lord gives it to us as we look on the cross and we see what Christ did for us. And we see that he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do ask that you would have mercy on us, that you would give us the same mind that your son took to himself in the flesh. Lord Jesus, we thank you and praise you that you are such a servant, that you gave your very life for us. As full of sin and rebellion as we have been, we thank you that you did not come to be served, but to serve. We praise you for serving us, for um, giving your soul to be a ransom for our sinful souls. We thank you that you have redeemed us. We thank you that you have renewed us. We thank you that you are renewing us. And we do pray that as fellow ministers and elders and believers this morning, that you would give us this mind, that you would make us to arm ourselves 
with the same mind with which you armed yourself. And so, Lord Jesus, we do ask that you'd help. As we come to the table, we pray that you would strengthen us in these things, that you would give us a clearer sight of yourself. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.